Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. The Manassian trial, its twists and its turns, as I've been saying, whole country's watching this very, very carefully. And uh, he's now, I was looking for a not criminally responsible uh, verdict. So uh, joining us is our good friend Scott Newark, professor at Simon Fraser University. His courses include Fundamentals of Security Risk Management, Terrorism and Civil Liberties, former Alberta Crown Prosecutor, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association, and Scott was also the head of the Ontario Office for Victims of Crime. Um, Scott, where do we start with this? Well, let me, let me do this. You're the former prosecutor. What, what has your attention in the Manassian trial? And uh, maybe you can give us an overview before we speak about the specifics. Well, I, I think right from the get-go, the, um, the evidence that was obtained, and I, I don't know, I don't have any specific uh, details about this, but I can tell from what I've read in the media, I think, that the police, whoever the officers were that interviewed him, did a really good job, because uh, in order to get the most relevant information, you have to ask the most relevant questions, and it appears as though they did that, anticipating that this guy might, uh, you know, uh, claim is uh, uh, not criminally responsible down the road. That's the, the real point. Is the, it's not so much the facts of the case per se, but um, it's the facts of the case in the context of what the law is uh, that's necessary for somebody to establish that not criminally responsible defense. It's in Section 16 of the Criminal Code. We used to call it insanity. But first of all, there, there's essentially three elements and the facts of the case are relevant in relation to all of this. The first is that the person has to be suffering from what is a, quote, mental disorder. In other words, something recognized by science, and there's a, uh, a science guidebook called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual uh, that the individual has. So there's going to have to be psychiatric expert evidence, and it looks like in this case they're going to say that he was suffering from autism, which is not normally something that's ever cited for as a basis for insanity. But even establishing them, that, there's two other um, options. The, uh, they can be um, uh, found to be not criminally responsible if the mental disorder rendered them incapable of appreciating what it was that they were doing or that uh, knowing that what they were doing was wrong. Well, we know from the evidence that there was extensive planning involved in this. So this individual obviously knew what he was doing. And as well, what is often the case where they go, well, oh, yeah, you know, I, I know what I did, but, uh, I, geez, I just was so messed up, I didn't know that it was really wrong. In this case, we know from the evidence that, first of all, he posted the motivation on social media with respect to this incel uh, movement. In other words, ideologically motivated, misogynistic uh, uh, motivation. But he also lied to his father to get his father to drive him somewhere close to the uh, van rental. Then he goes in and he lies to the van rental people about what it is that he intends to do, you know, do and that's why he wants the van. Well, if he didn't know that it was wrong, why would he not have said, well, I intend to run the van into a whole bunch of people and kill a whole bunch of people? You know, people lie for a reason. And in this case, I think the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that this guy, instead of suffering from uh, a disorder, a mental disorder under Section 16, was uh, suffering from being a jerk, and that's not a defense. Yeah, well, we, as you know, we can't uh, establish guilt or 
innocent on, on in media. I know um, you can't, but I have uh, several bets out, let's just say. Well, let's put it this way. I know where you are on this. <laughs> I, uh, subtle subtle what, and moderate as always. What, what, I get, what I get a lot, Scott, is when we talk about NCR, and we've done it yeah. a fair bit, because it, it really is uh, an increasing reality in, uh, in cases in this country. I referred it or asked the question last weekend where there was a menu item for, for defense, defense yeah. counsel. But what I'm hearing a lot, or in the emails I see at Roy, roygreenshow.com, is what are the parameters for NCR and, and where, where does precedent fit as far as uh, declaring an NCR verdict is concerned? Because precedent establishes much of what goes on in courtrooms across this country. Does that apply to NCR as well? It does, but it's, don't forget, it, everything is case-specific to the facts of the case before the trier of fact. So the principles in Section 16 and the interpretations of them, yes, those are precedents, but every case is decided on its own facts. And the thing that, uh, that alarms me about this, and, and I saw the same thing. You've been reporting on this probably more than anybody else about the increase in this. The thing that, uh, that really alarmed me, I had one case that actually went to trial on this where there was a claim of insanity. And the line that I used was, uh, you know, it was a horrible, horrible set of circumstances of this woman killing this little baby that she was supposedly babysitting. And I said, you know, all this really is, um, is that the defense, the, the crime becomes the defense. In other words, the circumstances are so horrendous that that somehow becomes an incentive to claim that the person must not have known what they were doing because it was just so horrible. Okay? And I think you've got to be fair, you know, with defense counsel. When we were uh, on with uh, our friend Jeff uh, Madison, um, look, defense counsel's job is to help their client avoid criminal responsibility for their actions. Okay? So given the facts in the case... It's not, I, I must admit, I'm, I think they're going to have a really tough time about it uh, in this particular case. But as I mentioned, you've been talking about this for quite a long time. And, you know, I actually went and checked on the uh, uh, crime stat, the jurostats, uh, to see because uh, if there had been an increase in NCR um, uh, applications or findings, you know, the results, how, often, how frequently people are released, reoffending rates, None of that is reported on that I could find, and I think what you've identified is a really important issue, because I agree with you. I think it is growing, and I'd like to know some of that uh, relevant data. Yeah, you know, I go back to uh, speaking with Carol Dadelli yes, yes. on many occasions over the years, and her son, uh, uh, Tim, was so savagely killed on that Greyhound bus in, in, in Manitoba years ago, and uh, Vince Lee was the killer, and now he's out, and he's free. He's declared Nancy R, and he's changed his name, and he's Vince Baker, and nobody knows anything about him wherever he's going, which I find really, really disturbing. Um, look, here's another aspect of this particular Manassian case. Uh, the U.S. psychiatrist oh. who's supporting Manassian's autism defense and his demand of the judge, the psychiatrist's demand of the judge, and the judge described this as a ransom demand. Um, go ahead, Scott. Um, no kidding. And the words of the judge, I, I was blown away when I was reading how absolutely blunt she was. You know, but this is like somebody putting a gun to my head. Uh, but the guy's in the United States, so we don't really have the ability to enforce a subpoena on him. But this is just unbelievable arrogance. What this guy is saying is, I will not uh, appear by Zoom and uh, testify unless I have confirmation that the videos of my interviews that I did with him will not be released to the public. Because he says, 
you know, I think it could serve as somehow as an incentive for other people to, uh, you know, become motivated in the same fashion. Uh, that's a decision for the court. So, I, as I say, I'm blown away by the arrogance of it. Uh, we'll see. I believe we'll see it start to roll out uh, next week. Can I just jump back to the stuff about Vince Lee? Because sure, I want to yeah. point out two things in particular about that. Because I think it's relevant to all these NCR cases, including the one that just happened in uh, New Brunswick, where the guy shot four people, uh, two police officers among them. Uh, number one, Vince Lee was somebody who had a long history of interactions with the mental health system, which clearly failed. How come we don't ask any questions about that? And take a look at you know the performance of the mental health system and why it isn't doing a better jo- a job. Secondly, um, the you know, ours is a discretionary system, theoretically, where we're making, you know, decisions based on individual facts. Um, why is it, and my understanding is that in Manitoba at the time, I don't know whether the law has changed, but a person can apply to change their name, okay, and um, just by making the application, you're allowed to get it approved. Don't you think we should have a system that says, well, actually, uh, sir, you killed a guy in a gruesome set of circumstances, and so we may decide you're not criminally responsible, but we're not going to let you change your name so you can hide. I think I'm with you on that. Possibly. I think it makes sense, you know. I mean, if we're going to have absolutely, let's absolutely. Both ways. absolutely. And, and I get the fact that there are people who are mentally ill and they do things because of their mental illness. And if they're dem- demonstrably and proven to be mentally ill, then that's another consideration. But we it also is, had a defense. You know, Roy, we have preventive tools. And when yeah. I look at this guy in New Brunswick, okay, and there's clearly, you know, evidence of uh, a mental disorder in this guy's case. Um, yeah. How is it that, I mean, did he have interactions with the mental health system? And by the way, how is it he was in lawful possession of guns? Same thing Scott, Justin Bourne. Yeah, Scott, look, we used to have a defense. I don't, it may, it may even exist still, I don't know. But we had a defense that was too guilt, too drunk to know what you were doing. And there were some horrific crimes committed, uh, while people were yes. too drunk to know what they were doing. And, and they basically, they, they, they walked away. But uh, my, my question was consistently, who forced the alcohol down your throat? Actually, there was a Supreme Court of Canada ruling about that. And I worked with Justice Minister Alan Rock to change the law. With respect to that, that would be back in the, uh, the mid-90s, okay, and specifically articulating the kinds of issues that, that we've been discussing in what's known as the preamble to the bill that explains the justification, which, you know, I mean, I helped write the bill, so it was, you know, like four or five paragraphs of what you just said in one sentence. Okay? Well, I, I have That's a way of cutting necessary. to Those the meat of the of matter. pragmatic yeah. pieces of legislation are necessary. <laughs> this uh, sex offender provision rule by the Supreme Court of Canada it's province-specific, but yeah. does, it have, does it have national implications as well? No. The, um, what people uh, uh, probably don't remember is that uh, the Sex Offender Registry actually uh, resulted from an inquest that was held into the death of a little uh, Christopher Stevenson by a career criminal named Joe Fredericks. The story that we covered with, uh, absolutely. with, with Christopher's mom and dad. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many times. And, and, uh, and, uh, and the uh, Doug Lewis, the, and the, the attorney uh, the general at the time. And the was that the um, individual was a high-risk offender who was released, um, and the uh, young boy was abducted. He was 11 years old at the time. He was abducted from a uh, shopping mall, and so there was an awareness that that had taken place, but there was no database in place to you know say, well, okay, you know, are there any uh, sex offenders on early release that are in the uh, in the area? And because they might have at least he was held, he was alive for about 24 hours before he was killed. 
So they might have at least been able to find him. And that was one of the recommendations that came out of the uh, the inquest that the Ontario government uh, held. And it was relatively uh, shortly after the Mike Harris government was elected. And so they created, it was a number of changes that ultimately got done. But for the Ontario government, they used their own jurisdiction and created the sex offender registry that required persons convicted of sex offenses that had to register. And there's restrictions on travel and things like that. Yeah. And I, I remember because we were trying to get the federal government to do the same thing, and they just could care less. They wouldn't do anything. And it took us years and years and years. It was literally, I remember being at meetings in Calgary at the federal uh, provincial territorial meetings with uh, then Minister uh, Bob Runciman. And I was, uh, you know, literally over dinner negotiating with a guy, a political staffer from then her, Minister, federal minister Herb Gray's office. And they finally put the federal system into place. The provincial system is what got struck down, and essentially it was just because there was something in it that is not in the federal system, and it is that there is no discretion within the sex offender registry uh, to deal with people on different circumstances, including in one case where a guy was found not criminally responsible on a sexual assault of his wife, who then frankly forgave him, and he was released from custody. He was given an absolute discharge, but he was still on the sex offender registry. Okay, and they say, well, and there's no discretion in the legislation to remove him from it. There's no off-ramp, as it's described, and so that's what the uh, the court oh, struck I see. down. Yeah, okay. Um, By remarkable... We, we need, we need, we need, we need sex decision? offender registries. We have to have sex offender registries. Yeah. Scott, the Alberta Court of Appeal and electronic devices at the border, yeah. what's going on? Brilliant, brilliant decision. Uh, it's a case called Canefield, and essentially they're two separate cases, fact-based, so it's not the, you know, the what-if scenario that's become all too common. Two guys coming, uh, Canadians coming back into uh, Canada from the United States at the Edmonton International Airport, and the officers at the primary inspection uh, have some suspicions about them. So as in accordance with law and CBSA policy, they referred to what's known as secondary for more examination. Yes, we've all been there with a bottle of scotch. Pardon me? We've all been to secondary inspection with a bottle of scotch. I know you'll find it hard to believe, but I don't think I ever have. Oh, sure. Um, But the the one guy admits that he's got child porn on his uh, smartphone, and the other guy is just really shady and asking, you know, and not really answering questions and stuff. So they do the search, and they find all this child porn on these two devices. So they're charged with that, and the, their lawyers are arguing that the process and the legislation uh, is unconstitutional because it violates the privacy rights of people, because it allows these warrantless search of electronic devices. And the court goes, just a meticulously detailed decision, goes through it and says, well, the definition of goods that can be searched, you know, was probably written in the 1930s, and it doesn't include specifically electronic devices, and the world and the case that upheld that as a there being a lower expectation of privacy at the border was a case called Simmons from 1988. And the court says, like, you know, the world was a different place in 1988 and there were legitimate privacy issues. But boy, what is so important, two key things that are really important about it. The court ruled, well, OK, the CBSA officers were acting in good faith when they did this because this is what the policy was. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge public interest in doing this, and it should, you know, be allowed to be continued. Yes. Because it's not worded correctly, we're finding that there's a breach here. But we're not going to invoke Section 24.2 of the Charter and exclude the evidence 
because it's very significant and it's true. So the evidence is admissible and the people are still convicted. That's, the, I think, you know, really important thing. I hope other courts are listening. The second one is... I have 30 seconds. The judicial activism that's become so current... Yeah. And for the court saying, well, okay, we'll make what the policy is. They said, you know, the, the, the wording of goods needs to be updated. Power search needs to be updated as well, too, in the legislation. Yeah. But that should be for the legislative branch. They put Great. a stay on striking down the legislation for a year and okay. it handed it back to Parliament so the Parliament can do its job. That's okay. what's so important, I think. About yeah, it is. If you want to hear more, Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.